poison ivy, loss of hearing, food poisoning, broken bones, bee stings, dog bites, layoffs, pollution, arguments, bullying, goodbyes, sadness, regret, divorce, alcoholism, loneliness, fear, car accidents, homelessness, Crohn's disease, barrenness, estrangement, verbal abuse, dementia, widowhood, waiting, sexism, cancer. These are some of the many, many, many things in our world full of difficulty and trouble and strife. Things that entered our world because of the choice of humans to sin. Now you may have recognized from my list dog bites, bee stings, and feeling sad. And you might recognize those from the sound of music. When Maria encourages the children that when things in life don't go so well, think on your favorite things. Now I completely affirm the very biblical call to try to think positively about things in this life. But having said that, and even when we do that, the problems and the darkness and the pain remains. And the question is, what hope is there for these things? Not just to think about something else and ignore them, but for all of the struggle and all of the difficulty and all of the evil that is present in this world, what does God have to say about these things? In what way is God at work to help us and rescue us in the face of the darkness and the difficulty that is all around us? And in what way is he calling us today to be part of the solution? Not just to think positively, as important as that is, but to actually be part of the work that God is doing to combat the difficulties in this world.
Well, in order to answer these questions, we need to go back to where all of those problems and more started. Not just some of the problems in the world, but all of the problems, all of the difficulty, all of the ways in which our life is not the blessing that God meant it to be. And we want to go back to the very beginning and see how this all happened. Not for a nice history lesson, but so that we might see the grace of God in the midst of this first story. And we might understand for us today what God is calling us to in the face of a world that is full of sin, darkness, evil, and trouble. So let me invite you to take a Bible and turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 3. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. Chapter 3. And we are going to look at the moment where all this went wrong. The moment in which the door was opened for all those things I listed and so much more. Genesis 3, if you're using a church Bible, it's page 2. We're actually going to start in chapter 2, verse 25. So right above that big 3. And then read on into chapter 3. Adam and Eve, the first two created humans, are married and living happily in the garden that God entrusted to them. And it says in verse 25 of chapter 2, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. And here comes the all-important verse. So pay close attention to verse six. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And at this very moment, sin enters the world. Sin, which opens the door for all the trouble, all the difficulty, all the ways in this world is not the way which this world is not the blessing that God meant it to be. Here is the moment. Here is the moment that everything turns. Now we say, what was the sin? Eating the forbidden fruit? Absolutely. They were commanded not to eat fruit from a tree and they ate fruit from the tree. They disobeyed and this brought sin into the world. 
But there's more going on here. Something deeper. A root cause. The disobedience is actually the symptom. The eating of the forbidden fruit is actually more of the surface. What is going on underneath of the surface? What is the root cause of their sin? Look back at verse 6. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Question. Who's missing from that verse? Who's not mentioned at all in that verse? God. How did the Bible open? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we said that the opening verse of the Bible, the opening verse of human history, sets the context for the right way in which life is supposed to be lived, in which God is the subject of the sentence. God is the subject. He is the one who is doing. He commands and we obey. God is at the center. But where is he in verse 6? He's not even in the sentence. Let alone not the subject anymore. He's not even present in the consideration. If you have time this week. Go back and read through those first five verses and look at what Satan did to slowly, subtly, snakily move God out of the conversation. He's there at the beginning in verse one. He's gone by verse six. This is Satan causing us humans to commit the root sin the root of all sin. All things that are evil and wrong have one thing at their base. It's what the Bible calls pride. It's what we today might call selfishness or self-centeredness. It is moving God out of the center, out of the subject, and taking his place. It is thinking too much about ourselves and not enough about God. Nowhere is what God wants or desires or commanded even considered in verse 6. Adam and Eve see the fruit. They desire the fruit. They eat the fruit. That is the sin they disobeyed. But at the root of that sin and every other sin that has ever been committed in human history is the displacing of God as the subject. It's putting ourselves in God's place. The result is the curse of sin. There are two aspects to the curse of sin in this passage. Verses seven and eight then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. 
Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The first curse or consequence of sin is internal. The theological word for it is condemnation, by which we mean guilt and shame. In chapter 2, verse 25, they were naked and felt no shame. And by verse 7 of chapter 3, they are now feeling shame. The guilt, the shame, the internal struggle. And notice, this happens immediately. God has not pronounced any curses. The moment they sin, they feel the internal condemnation. We were made for something different than this. Now in the world in which we live today, there are lots of discussion about fake guilt and fake shame. But there is also legitimate guilt and legitimate shame. That internal feeling that makes you want to hide that makes you put up, put up walls of defensiveness, that makes you want to lash out to do anything other than acknowledge that you've fallen short, that I'm not the person that I'm supposed to be. And the first curse of sin is condemnation, shame, guilt. The second curse, verses 9 to 13 but the Lord called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The theological word for what's going on here is death or separation. Adam and Eve's relationship with God is broken. The woman you put here made me do this. The relationship between Adam and Eve is broken. He's blaming her as well as God. The relationship between Adam and Eve and creation is broken. The serpent made me do it. This shows up in the rest of the chapter when God spells out there is now brokenness in relationships. First of all, in our relationship with creation, God says to the woman, you're going to have pain in childbearing. He says to the man, the ground is not going to yield its fruit very easily to you. There will be thorns and thistles. The curse of sin shows up in the brokenness of our relationship with one another. He says to Eve, your desire is going to be for your husband and he will rule over you. That is not a healthy situation. The curse of sin shows up in the brokenness of our relationship with God. In verses 21 to 24, Adam and Eve are banished from God's presence. 
And God announces to both of them that they will return to the dust and die. These are the curses of sin. The internal curse of condemnation, the shame, the guilt, the feeling that I'm not who I'm supposed to be. I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And then what we call death or separation. The breaking of our relationship with God, with others, and with the creation in which we live. Now, by all rights, this should have been the end of the story. Adam and Eve are hiding in the garden, trying to avoid God. Have you ever had the situation where maybe some friends are going to play a game, and because it's not the game you wanted to play, you say you're not going to play it? And then they go on and play it and have fun without you anyway? Or have you had the situation where in anger you quit your job and much to your chagrin they accepted your resignation? Or maybe where you broke up with a girl because you were trying to hurt her and she got on with her life and you were no longer a part of it. Don't miss, that is the very real danger that humans are in, in verse eight. Adam and Eve have run away from God. They are hiding from him. By all rights, God should have just simply kept walking out of that garden into a new creation with more obedient creatures. But look what he does instead in verse 9. The Lord God called to the man. Where are you? The problem is, is Adam and Eve have forgotten about God. They may have talked about God, but they did not consult God. They disobeyed God. They removed God from being the subject of the sentence. And God, in his kindness, does not say, fine, if that's the way you want it, I will do this over without you. In kindness, he reasserts himself as the subject. The Lord God takes the initiative. The Lord God comes looking for us, hiding in our sin, our condemnation, and our separation. And when he finds us, he rightfully announces the curse of sin. But in the midst of it, he does what we absolutely, completely did not deserve, but which is 100% within the character of who he is. He announces hope. It's in verse 15. God says, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is the promise that from a human, God will bring rescue for humans from Satan, sin, and death. 
It's a promise that is encrypted in Genesis 3 in seed form, but comes to fulfillment in the New Testament in the person of Jesus. Now I've got a graphic up here I want to show you. This is actually a summary of what Romans 5 teaches. The book of Romans, the entire book, is actually dealing with the issue of Genesis 3. Let me encourage you this week to read through the book of Romans. It begins in Genesis 1 with people doing exactly what Adam and Eve have done, which is removing God from the subject of the sentence. And the rest of the book goes through and explains in great detail how God is choosing to treat us not the way our sins deserve, but is working to rescue us from this choice right here. It's a beautiful, amazing, really deep, powerful explanation of what God does for us in response to Genesis 3. In Romans 5, we have a summary of that. And I'm summarizing that for us today in this graphic. On the left side, Romans 5 lists the two curses for sin, condemnation and death. And Romans 5 says, in the midst of a world full of condemnation and death, God gave his son Jesus. And through Jesus' act of obedience at the cross, God turns condemnation into righteousness. That instead of shame, we have peace. Instead of internal guilt, we feel a sense of wholeness. And through Jesus' obedience, God turns death into eternal life. This is God's gift promised in Genesis 3. Come to fruition. Jesus, who is God, but is human, born of a human woman, come to take the consequences of sin, condemnation, and make it righteousness death and turn it into eternal life. And I want to pause here for just a moment and say to any here who are listening who are not yet believers in Jesus, my encouragement to you is I know that you're hiding. I know that you may be running away from God. I know that you may be stuck in your own internal strife and guilt and shame. I know that you are experiencing the brokenness of relationship with God, with other humans, and with the very planet. But I'm here to tell you that God loves you so much that he does not want to let you hide any longer. That he is walking in the garden of your life this morning, calling out to you, where are you? It's not that he doesn't intellectually know where Adam is. It's an invitation. It's an invitation to come out of the shame, out of the guilt, out of the hiding, and out of the death. 
And that same invitation is being offered to you today. And my encouragement to you is stop hiding. Stop being afraid. Stop running. And start living. God loves you so much that he does not want to abandon you to your own choices and to the consequences of your own choices but instead gave his own son Jesus so that your internal shame and guilt might become righteousness and peace and joy and that the death you are experiencing in this life might become eternal life. All you have to do is respond to God saying, where are you? Here I am, Lord. Now for those of us who are already Christians, what God does to overcome what happened in Genesis 3, the opening of the door to all of the sin and trouble goes beyond simply what Romans 5 says and, and, hear me carefully, goes beyond even the work that Jesus did for us. Romans 12 goes on to talk about what we're supposed to do in light of what Jesus did for us. Romans 12 says, do not be overcome by evil, but what? Overcome evil with good. And here is the incredibly powerful truth for those who are already Christians that we see from Jesus' example. Obedience is more powerful than disobedience. Obedience is more powerful than disobedience. Look at the graphic I have up here for you. Where we all were before Jesus, we were in a state of condemnation and death. And then Jesus' act of obedience brought us righteousness and eternal life. Now, if you've been around Christianity, if you've heard these terms, it may feel like, okay, well, we had condemnation and death and we got the opposite. We got righteousness and eternal life. But listen to this. If all Jesus' obedience did was simply erase the negative effects of Adam's disobedience, this is what the chart would have looked like. Condemnation would have become innocence. We would have just erased it. The sin would have been erased and death would have just become human life, meaning Adam and Eve would have gotten their lives back. But that's not what happened. Jesus' obedience turned condemnation into righteousness. Righteousness is far better than simply innocence. Jesus' obedience turned death not simply back into the life that Adam and Eve had before, but into eternal life, life that is far better than what Adam and Eve were given in the garden, which means Jesus' one act of obedience was more powerful than Adam and Eve's one act of disobedience. If you want to think about it in mathematical terms, 
if the act of disobedience is a negative one, Jesus' obedience is like a plus 10. We don't end up back at zero. We end up way in the positive. Does that make sense? And this is the mind-blowing part. Not only is it better and stronger, Jesus' one act of obedience not only took care of Adam and Eve's one act of disobedience, it took care of all the acts of all the disobedience that have ever happened in all of human history. Obedience is far, far stronger than disobedience. Well, what does that have to do with us today? Turn in your Bibles to Romans 16. I'd like you to turn there because I'd like you to see it. It's page 923. Remember, the whole book of Romans is God's amazing plan to undo the effects of Genesis 3. Romans 1 through 11 talks about what God did through Jesus for us to overcome sin and death. And Romans 12 through 16 tells what we're supposed to do to be part of God's solution to the problems and troubles in this world. Verse 17. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Who does that sound like? Satan. By smooth talk... And flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people and encourage them to give way to their appetites. What was happening in Genesis 3 is still happening today, just more so that Satan is everywhere causing us to remove God from the subject of the sentence and to follow the cravings of our own desires. What does Paul say in response to that? Verses 19 and 20. Everyone has heard about what? Your obedience. Not Jesus' obedience. His is talked about in verses, chapters 1 through 11. Your obedience. Your obedience and my obedience. So I rejoice because of you, but I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. And then look at verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. We are part of the fulfillment of the promise God made in Genesis 3.15. That God wants to crush Satan, sin, and death. And he does so first and foremost through Jesus' obedience, but also secondly, when we obey. Why? 
Because when you obey, you are moving God back into the subject of the sentence. God commands, we obey. He's the subject, we respond. And the encouragement to you and I today, as, if we, as we look at the list of all the junk, all the stuff that's wrong in this world, when we look around and we see all of the problems, it's easy to become overwhelmed and think there are billions and billions of people who are making billions and trillions of bad choices. What hope? is there in this world? And God's response is, all I need is one person who is willing to obey because acts of obedience are far more powerful than disobedience. For example, for the last two weeks at Calvary, we've been talking about some hard issues with regards to gender and sexuality. I think I told you. That was not my ideal topic for the opening weeks in September of a new school year. But the Lord said he wanted to talk about, talked about it, and to my best I tried to obey. When I tried to write those sermons, it was really difficult. So many things to say. And I spent, and you did for me as well, prayed an immense amount. Lord, do you want this in there? Do you want that in there? What are we supposed to do? And to the best of my ability that I know how I tried to obey and say not what I felt like saying, but what I thought the Lord wanted said. The result was over the past two weeks, I've gotten a lot of emails. Almost all of them went something basically like this. Thank you so much for saying what God wanted you to say about this. I heard the Lord say this or this or this, whatever it was, and the blessing I received from that far outweighed some of the negative things I've heard before or the months or years of neglect of the church not talking about these kinds of things. One act of obedience is stronger than the disobedience. Or consider this situation. Imagine a young girl who's suffering from racism and bullying and loneliness at school. And imagine there's just one girl who listens to the Lord's voice and decides to befriend her, to stand up for her, to make sure she's got someone to eat with at lunch. Do you not think that that one act of obedience is going to be far, far stronger than all the harm that the disobedience causes? When that girl looks back on her school years, who do you think she's going to remember besides the one friend who came and loved her in obedience to Jesus. One act of obedience is far stronger than all the disobedience. Or consider this situation. A man who's dated three or four different women and each time been broken up with by them because they were looking for ungodly qualities and he didn't seem to have those. What about the woman who in obedience to the Lord introduces herself to him, starts dating him, and even perhaps asks him to marry her. Will not that one act of obedience 
far outweigh those previous bad three or four experiences that that man has had? The truth of what Jesus demonstrates for us is that when we choose to obey, it is far, far more powerful than when people around us are disobeying. You see, when we as humans disobey, what we're doing is we're moving God out of the subject of the sentence and we're putting ourselves in his place. And when we do that, we can create terrible, terrible things. But when we obey, we are moving God back into the subject of the sentence. And what God can accomplish for good as the subject of the sentence is far, far greater than the very worst things that humans can do. Obedience is far stronger than disobedience. And so here is the call. In the midst of a world that is confused about what to do in response to a pandemic, struggling with racism, political strife, financial things, stuff going on in schools. What is God's desire for you and I? What does he want? What does he need? How do we keep the darkness from expanding and taking over everything? How do we combat all the sin that's in this world? Obey. Whatever God is asking you to do, Romans 12, present your body as a living sacrifice. Romans 13, submit to government. Romans 13, love your neighbor. Romans 14, be kind to people who think differently than you do about certain things. Romans 15, don't let there be racial tension between you. Jews and Gentiles ought to all be together. And Romans 16, don't put up with divisive people. Stop listening to them. Have nothing to do with them. And when you and I choose to obey, you will bring the power of Jesus' resurrection into whatever situation you're in. Will all trouble cease? Not until Jesus returns. Will all problems go away? No. Will all other sins be eradicated? No. But that's not what God's looking for. He's just looking for somebody at your school, in your family, at your workplace, in government, somebody who will say, here I am, Lord. I've come to do your will. You command, and I'll obey. Amen. This leads us to the opportunity to be able to not just affirm this, but to think through it. We have a time of communion this morning. Just a moment, I'm going to pray. After the prayer, there'll be just a few minutes of silent reflection. You can reflect on ways in which God might be calling you to obey in a particular situation. You may want to spend some time confessing how you or I, like Adam and Eve, pursued our own desires, have removed God from the subject, and we want to confess that to him. Take a couple of minutes to do that. Uh, and then I'll come back up and lead us in partaking of communion. Let's pray together. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast from Calvary Church. We hope this message has brought the light and hope of God's presence into your life, refreshing your soul for the journey the Lord has you on. 
If you have a spiritual need or would like to connect further with the work God is doing through Calvary Church, seek us out online at calvarygr.org. On our website, you can also find an archive of previous messages from this series. Thanks for listening.